Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma, the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we have another fantastic episode for you guys today. Thank you for listening and watching and sharing it. I mean, we've been honestly impressed by how many people are watching this. When you start a podcast, the general expectation is no one and maybe your mom listens to it. And uh, I found out a couple weeks ago that, oh, no, actually, a lot of you are listening to it. So thank you. Uh, please make sure you're rating and subscribing and sharing it as much as possible. We put in a good deal of work to make sure this is as high quality and informative as possible. So we appreciate you helping out with that. You know, I think we've gotten enough people to listen now to that my mom has started listening to it. That's like right. she she wouldn't listen to it at the beginning, but now that there are like people that watch it and post about it, she's like, oh crap, I guess I do have to listen to this. Yeah, she has to make sure that you're not <laughs> embarrassing her. And, and, and I think we haven't uh, embarrassed anyone yet. Uh, just a few housekeeping things. Uh, the applications for the American Moment Fellowship on American Statecraft are closed. Uh, we said that last week, and it is still the case. Um, the final count was 207 applications. We just did not expect that at all. We have our work cut out for us when it comes to vetting all the candidates and deciding who will get the fellowship slots. But thank you. Um, if you're looking for other stuff to get involved with uh, with uh, with American Moment, uh, you know, Summit, the F Conference on American Statecraft, the interest form for that is up. Uh, we're hard at work confirming the dates and everything. So stay tuned for more information, but you can get on the list to be notified when those applications go live right away. Uh, for the podcast today, we have on a good friend of ours, Kurt Mills. Uh, Kurt is a senior reporter at the American Conservative, where he covers all sorts of things, but primarily focuses on foreign policy and campaigns and elections. He's one of the most interesting reporters and people I know in Washington, D.C. He's also a native of the swamp, so he has an interesting perspective there. And we had a fantastic episode that really jumped around from topic to topic. It's amazing how hard it is to elide some of these foreign policy questions from the questions of the 2024 race. And and often you're talking about the same players. Uh, what do you think about that episode, Nick? It was really good. I, uh, you know, when Kurt first came to the studio, I had to um, eat crow a little bit. Uh, I uh, had dinner with Kurt about a month before the election and I made some uh, predictions and basically all of them turned out to be wrong. So I had to... Uh, apologize to Kurt for leading him astray. But uh, no, it was a very good episode. Uh, you know, covered a lot about uh, Trump's personnel issues, particularly when it came to uh, foreign policy. Um, and you'll also have to stick around to the end of the episode when he talks about his dark horses for 2024. Right. And he also has a, a, you know, a doomsday prediction of his own. So make sure you stick to the end. Once again, rate and subscribe. And uh, now we'll go straight to Kurt Mills. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Kurt. Thanks for having me. First thing we like to do with every guest we have on is explain how on earth they got to the place they are. You are a foreign policy reporter um, or, or your general assignment. What's the exact nature of your title at the American Conservative? I would call myself a foreign policy and campaign reporter. Um, so that's your current role. How did you end up in that position? Um, well, previously, I was at a place called The National Interest, also The Spectator, also at Washington Examiner, US News and World Reports. I've been around a little bit. Um, I'm from here. Went to school a little bit down south, and just, you're a swamp native. I yeah, mostly I would say. I mean, I, I pretty much lived in every suburb and most of the neighborhoods in DC. Well, not, not not most, but a lot of them. And so, seen quite a bit of the carousel around here. Yeah. What is it? What What do people miss? Not most of the people who live in Washington DC are transients. They don't really spend a lot of time here. What is it that they seem to miss about? Uh, the DMV, uh, as it were, um, that that you have noticed having spent most of your life here. Um, I mean, I, I guess with the DMV is good, or at least that uh, <laughs> for for the people inside You're of it. You are pro Washington DC. Yeah, yeah, especially the city proper. Um, the the question is if it's good for the uh, the republic or the country at large. That's a that's a too soon to tell, right? As the famous Chinese proverb was. Yeah. Well, given that most of the wealthiest suburbs in America are right around this area, right. particularly because of something tangential to your beat, which is all of the military contractors around here, one can assume that probably not, that it's not the greatest thing for the country. Um, so tell us a little bit about you know the, the state of uh, 
you know, foreign policy going into the Biden administration. Obviously, you you have you come at this from I think a restraint perspective. That has been your your angle on foreign policy for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, what has been your read on 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 American foreign policy um, as we've transitioned to this Biden administration? Are we are we are the endless wars back? Uh, what's what's exactly going to happen? Um. Well, I, I just don't think he cares about anything. So, like, it's uh, I, it's it's a weird thing where he had this foreign policy pedigree. He was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, if Kerry had become president in two thousand four, there's good reason to believe that he would have been Secretary of State. Um, you know, he very much, you know, on the one hand, he you know he sort of has a Richard Nixon or George H. W. Bush pedigree, where like he got in as a sort of career capstone and he wanted to just do foreign policy. But that's not really. What the moment has demanded, uh, especially the internal politics of the Democratic Party, uh, Biden looks at himself as a domestic policy president, um, and accordingly, he's really not going to rock the boat. It would appear on foreign policy. When you say the end of wars are back, I mean I'm not really sure they went anywhere. They just didn't open up any new ones under Trump, right? And then Trump made a lot of noise about drawing back in these places, and and maybe he, re- he very much would have if he had gotten the second term, right? This May one Afghan deadline would be really have stayed in Syria for four more years. Um, but I think in general, uh, no, Biden is committed to U.S. primacy, as was Trump in his own way. But but Biden is an institution man. One of the pieces that really got you uh, on the map, as it were, where I believe that the very first piece you wrote for the American conservative as a reporter, there was something like that was a piece predicting the fall of John Bolton as Trump's second, third national security his advisor, third. his third. third national security advisor. Uh, a, can you tell the story of how that piece came about, what your prediction was, how you were proven right, and and why John Bolton and Trump were perhaps not the best? I guess fit? it wasn't so much of a prediction. I mean, it, it was, I, I had reporting that he was on his way out, um, and uh, it, I didn't know it was going to be the next day. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, look, the, the NSC job, heading the National Security Council, heading the, you know, being the National Security Advisor for Trump was. I hate to make like a Harry Potter reference, but it was like it was like sort of like the, the defense against the dark arts position of <laughs> of Trump. It was very difficult. None of them served eighteen months. O'Brien was in from September to January twenty twenty, so that's sixteen months. And I believe O'Brien was the longest one, depending on how you count it. Um, I think that uh, the Bolton thing just absolutely came to a crescendo between Trump and Bolton. I mean, there was an essential contradiction. Uh, from the beginning, which is that Trump didn't really know much about Bolton's pedigree or CV, but liked the idea of having a super tough guy who was in, um, I think, particularly with the, the late Sheldon Adelson and also the Fox News crew. And he thought he could balance it as a sort of, you know, uh, good cop, bad cop sort of thing. And it, it, it just ended. It, that relationship wasn't nearly as disastrous for Trump as the Flynn relationship was or as sour as the relationship he had with McMaster. The McMaster thing was actually quite poor. But Bolton, of course, uh, betrayed Trump in far more spectacular fashion than McMaster did. So the story of kind of Flynn to McMaster to Bolton to O'Brien is in some ways, it may be an interesting synecdoche for the story of Trump's personnel writ large. Explain to us sort of what the how Trump's foreign policy was was represented in those men and and how it may have differed from their personalities over the course of the administration. I mean, you know, when when Trump first ran, it, there there was this general sense about that that he was going to be a break from the Republican Party's foreign policy establishment by disavowing mm-hmm. the Iraq War, which is what eventually got Bill was. Crystal to turn on him. Yeah. So so you think he was? Um, did that bear out in the way the administration operated? I mean, you know the president has this sort of imperial free hand on foreign policy in a way he doesn't have domestically. So yeah, there were real changes that happened. Um, you know, I think principally with China and trade, um, but also this, you know, just the way we talked about the Middle East and also the way we talked about um, US national interests. I think those are real changes. And I think those are real changes to the Republican Party. And I also think the real changes to the country, they're not going away um, as much as Biden would like to be a restorationist. Um, if you look at the national security advisors, for the audience is interested. Um, I mean, Flynn was very much Trumpism as style. Uh, Flynn was the basically the uh, military intelligence chief uh, under Barack Obama and flamed out under Barack Obama over a disagreement over Iran. This is also he wasn't the only official who flamed out under Obama under about Iran. That James Mattis was also fired as chief of CENTCOM under Obama over Iran as we were gearing up to do the deal. Um, I don't know how much Flynn and uh, 
uh, Trump really agreed on all the specifics to the extent that Trump had a command of the specifics in any real way. Um, but um, you know, Flynn was a fighter, an anti-establishment guy, and got the NSA job. And it was a problem, you know, very clearly from the beginning. Obama warned Trump in the transition about Flynn specifically. Um, look, I think there's all kinds of evidence that potentially the, the feds were, were overzealous in prosecuting the case. But there's also evidence that you know he was potentially an unregistered foreign agent for Turkey, which is like not something that you want to do as you're the national security advisor. So Flynn is a is a my, the, the word the watchword is a, is Farago. Flynn's life is a, a Farago, as far as I can tell. Uh, McMaster was a sort of like Empire Strikes Back moment within the administration when the generals took over. Right, General Kelly was the chief of staff, and McMaster was the NSA. Um, it's just like the master style is just so different than, than Trump's, right? And I feel like I'm coming off uh, too hard on Trump. Trump is just not a student, right? He's just not a reader, right? He's, he's a, he's a glad-handing politician personality who learns by instinct. He's tactile. Um, McMaster is a... You know, like somebody who you give him a topic and he'll, he'll research it for 30 hours and then compile the sort of what the experts will say. I cannot think of an approach that was more diametrically opposed to Trump's approach than that. Uh, Tillerson was this way, you know, very uh, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State early on, you know, very, um, you know, he would uh, sort of deliberate corporate Excel spreadsheet, um, not Trump style. And those guys were gone by spring 18. And then moving into into oh, John Bolton, Bolton. Bolton. Yeah. yeah, I mean Bolton. I mean he just—it's like a Teddy Roosevelt impersonator. Um, <laughs> like, like I like—I mean Trump loved it. I mean he like he liked the optics of it. And, and, and there's something like, you know, the Republicans get so much, um, so much grief uh, in in public life. I, I think they they oftentimes like to to latch on to these sort of like bad boy um, players, you know, like uh, John Bolton. Eric Prince, right? Like whether or not you think like Eric Prince is a guy and you think Eric Prince is a really bad guy. There's something very cool in the Republican conception of like a literal mercenary is just like in the in the fold. This is why like Republican attra- a, a, a politicians are quite attracted to these figures. You know, the thing I always found fascinating about John Bolton is that he would not identify as uh, a part of the, you know, neoconservative yes. foreign policy establishment. Yes. Uh, what point was he trying to make there, and is that correct? Do you see him as as something fundamentally different than, say, what we traditionally think about when we think of of neoconservative foreign policy, or not? Um, Ken, I always like I have to find this stuff like really fascinating. I, I, I just worry about how many people care. It, it's you know, it's what is a neocon? I mean, I mean, the original neocons, the first generation, are basically the old school Trotskyites, Trotskyites who were in New York City, you know, Irving Crystals, the sort of you know, the dawn of of <laughs> of you know, Bill Crystal's father, father uh, of of neoconservatives, and then you have the sort of second wave, right? Like Robert Kagan. Um, David Frum, Bill Kristol, the sort of Iraq war crew, Paul Wolfowitz, et cetera. And there's all these sort of like interesting questions about like, was Bush a neoconservative himself? Was Cheney a neoconservative himself? Was Rumsfeld a neoconservative himself? And we get into this all day. Um, I think where Bolton uh, would uh, draw a distinguishing characteristic um, is that he is not a humanitarian interventionist. So his position, now this is also convenient because he wasn't at the upper echelons of the Bush administration and very well <laughs> might have had this record if he was. And in fact, I suspect he would have, but he says he wouldn't. Um, you know, he was basically on arms control for Colin Powell uh, in the State Department. The State Department was this huge outlier in the Bush cabinet. Um, and Bolton was sort of like Cheney's guy, you know, or at least the White House's guy in this sort of suspicious State Department. And but he claims that if he had been the president, basically, or the, or the national security advisor, we would have done Iraq, we would have deposed Saddam and we would have left. And that's very distinct from the sort of humanitarian uh, sort of raison d'etre why we were there uh, for, that uh, Paul Wolfowitz, for instance, would, would, would cite. Yeah, the difference for me, like with Bolton, seems to be that he just like likes he likes to have an enemy. Like he he likes he has to have someone to go out and destroy. Like I'm not even sure if it's rubble doesn't make trouble. Yeah, like I'm not sure if it's as ideological as a lot of pundits want to make it out to seem. Like he really just seems like the kind of guy that wants to like he has his cause that he latches on to, you know, going to war about or whatever until he gets it or until like there's no possible way forward. I'm I'm just not sure it's as uh, ideological as. I, well, you know, I, I don't mean to like to just explicitly disagree, but I think it, what's underrated about Bolton is that he is like 
an actual libertarian or self-conceives that way. Like mm. He, he uh, has called himself a libertarian and printed recently. It's 2007 when he did his expert interview with Edward Luce in the Financial Times. Um, you know, he was a sort of pamphleteer for uh, Garrett, uh, Barry Goldwater in 1964 election. He's a college Republican, I believe, you know, Federal Society, friends of Clarence Thomas, Yale Law School. Um, he really believes that the American free market system uh, is the best. Um, and he is open to leveling any other system that he feels is in the way of that. And so when he does his, uh, he read closely, he does his memoir tour, or he did his memoir tour, or whatever it's called, his tell-all tour, um, he he's like serious when he says Donald Trump is not a real conservative because Donald Trump's not a Reaganite, which of course Donald Trump is not. And that that irks John Bolton in a real way. Mm -hmm. So that's his 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 domestic orientation is fundamentally ideological and it informs. I think he's all a I think he's a total free market guy. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in yeah. I think there's no evidence. I, I I don't think he's a social conservative. I mean, I mean, I, there's there's you know all kinds of stuff there, but I think he's a he's a pretty big classic sort of Gordon Gecko style, uh, you know, free market Republican in the '80s, and and uh, you know, I don't think he has a time of day for Chinese communism or Russian autocracy or European socialism or Wahhabism. You mentioned. China as one of the things that the administration had uh, really made a break from the previous foreign policy establishment on. Um, why is it that China didn't get a lot of attention until Trump started uh, breaking the mold on it? Is it really the case, you know, the, the, the caricature of the take that we get that American elites were simply beholden to the great riches coming out of outsourcing everything to China and, and they didn't want to have that conversation? Or is it, is it more nuanced than that? A boomer psychological phenomenon. I mean, I, I think it would be, it'll be parsed, assuming that there is a species for for generations. I I, I think, uh, I mean, it's just like, uh, so much of of the U.S. buy-in on the first Cold War, if I can even use that term, first Cold War. It's like if if so much of the U.S. buy-in was ideological, they're the communists. They have this sort of, I mean, it's, it's I mean, it wasn't like a strictly state system, right? But like this sort of American conception is like. All the milk in the Soviet Union is on like one milk truck. It just says milk. This is how Russia's run. Yeah, and like, like, there's a pastel gray. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's like some troops do it right, but it's like not really. Um, and like you know, the Chinese, it's like with we want to set up multinational co corporations and we want to compete with your labor. And um, that was, I mean, yeah, it's like really useful when like like. The riches from that are funding your mansions in McLean or whatever, or in, in Palo Alto, or what. But I think like the fundamental thing was actually ideological, and people um, also. I mean, the trade, immigration, and foreign policy approach was all, in my interpretation, um, one of the same. I mean, if you go back to the the early literature of the '90s about what, what to do now that we've won the Cold War, um, you know, people knew. Uh, what the trade agreements would do. They would decimate the US industrial base. And if you read the trade literature, it's basically like, well, you know, if you if you work in a factory and that factory moves to Monterey, Mexico, well, the war's over. Move to Monterey, Mexico. Of course, what we found is all these people stayed, right? And like, like these people vote. It caused a lot of problems to the country. And putting aside the, the ethics of just exporting people's jobs. So the internationalism and the globalism that characterized that period of time was was something that just permeated the entire consensus ideologically. Yes, yes. I, mean, I, mean, there, I mean, there were people there were people who said it was bad, but they were obscure Harvard professors or Ross Perot or Bernie Sanders or Pat Buchanan, and they were considered freaks, if not bigots. Moving into the final uh, foreign policy uh, or the final national security advisor that President Trump had, which was Robert O'Brien. Um, you know, that, that that sort of characterized the period of time that a lot of people seem to recognize as the administration waking up on the personnel question. It it accompanied all sorts of other changes when it came to who was deciding personnel at the White House. Uh, it accompanied the, you know, entry of Mark Meadows as chief of staff. What's your read on 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 that relationship and and was it a, a good fit? Between O'Brien and, and Trump? Yeah, between O'Brien and Trump. And 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 what did it portend for, you know, what a Trump to Trump term two could have looked like? Going into foreign policy, yeah, I mean, it's unclear if O'Brien would have stayed in that job in a Trump term too. It's possible that he could have moved to defense or state. There was some talk there. Um, I think that his confirmation would have been pretty easy. Um, so who knows? Um, but you know, Trump, you can't guarantee one week from the other. Um, I think that you know, I think Ambassador O'Brien 
and Trump got along clearly the best of, of all of the four NSAs he had. Although Trump remained, it's important to remember that Trump uh, retains a lot of residual respect in like of General Flynn and General Flynn was involved with the voter fraud, whatever um, stuff that was going on in December and July and January in a way that- Yeah, there were two national oh, security advisors O'Brien wandering around the White House in, in, in the late- <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I, I think it's, it's fair to say that O'Brien is the most polished and professional of the four national security advisors um, that Trump had. And oddly enough, the best fit for both of the gentlemen's purposes. Um, you know, I, he's, he's, um, he's a lawyer by training. He's from California. Um, you know, uh, you know, strikingly, there, there actually weren't a ton of lawyers around Trump. I mean, like, uh, you know, a lot of people are like putative lawyers, like Pence and Pompeo have law degrees, but they really didn't practice very long. Um, O'Brien was like a major deal West Coast trial lawyer, um, managing partner, I believe. Aaron Fox was a huge T100 firm. Um, so, you know, also a Mormon. All of these kinds of things that were not normally in Trump's uh, orbit, frankly, um, and yeah, and and very much like on the sort of like a you know conservative ink team a little bit, um, and like didn't sort of like you know genuflect that he was anything different than that. Obviously, you know, fine with Trump as the nominee and as the president, but not the first choice by any means, like a lot of the cabinet. Um, yeah, he's an interesting figure. He's he's he's, he's very unknown to the public, um, but um, I think he liked to change that. Well, and that goes to the intersection of, of your two beats, which are foreign policy and now the campaign trail. Uh, I learned through reading you that apparently Robert O'Brien thinks he can be president. Well, well why is that? And, well, I, think and... <laughs> I think I, I think people in politics can either want to be the president or not. Right. So it's like like uh, Mitch McConnell doesn't want to be the president. I mean, like, like, hypothetically, maybe he would want it. But I think he like he, he foreclosed that option a very long time ago. And like Chuck Schumer doesn't want to be the president. Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to be the president, right? Kevin McCarthy probably doesn't want to be the president. But in general, if the person has some ambition, they seem to want to be the president. Now, my, my counter to this is that there are all types of people um, that are on the Hill or in the governor's seats that you never hear of. I should really like to... I mean, I'm sure they're they're serving the constituents fine, um, but like you, you, you. I mean, consider how much attention is paid to Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz or Bernie Sanders or people who aren't even in the Senate, Eric Greitens, J.D. Vance, all these kinds of things. I think there's this sense that these are people who could go all the way, and that somehow affects the ideological battleground. And. Robert O'Brien specifically yes. thinks that, you know, he could go all the way. Um, give us kind of what, what's his pitch on that? And then how's the 2024 field shaping up in general? Well, he hasn't made his pitch, but he's he's definitely talking to people. Um, and that's what I reported. Um, you know, I, I think I think it's it's you know, the, the field that Trump is the candidate, the field that Trump endorses somebody else, the field that Trump's not a candidate, the field that Trump is alive you know like all of these all of these things are sort of huge jump balls that aren't really going to be resolved until there's some clarity um but i think that it's not outlandish for people like um o'brien secretary pompeo to look at it as sort of like hey look we are transitioning the party from reaganism to, to, to something whatever you want to call it trumpism Sort of conservative nationalism. Um, we have the national security bona fides to to make this case. We have experience in government. Um, we're in our fifties. You know, you know, we, it, it's time for generational change, right? Um, sort of Gen X conservative element to this, um, and that's going to be their pitch. And then also like a bet that there's only one Trump, right? Like that that that. You know, people will say like, well, it's just going to go back to the old, you know, Bush style. Like, no, I think I think that's actually completely false. But a decent bet is that it could go back um, institutionally, right? Like if you have somebody who plays the game in a traditional way, but actually has the newer politics. Mm. So assuming that Trump doesn't get in mm -hmm. um, on the foreign policy question specifically, do you think that these characters, um, you know, whether it's people like Secretary Pompeo or Robert O'Brien, that they seek a restoration of the old, old foreign policy consensus or have they genuinely learned some lessons from the Trump era? I think everybody in Trump's orbit gives him a lot of credit on China and trade, um, whatever they think of him. And, um, you know, I, I think they recognize that Trump really moved the ball on China and that um, a lot of the dogmatic sort of center-right economic analysis on trade 
was proved false. I mean, if you go back to 2016, just Google it. It's like the trade policies are going to crash the economy. It's not true at all. In fact, proof positive is that uh, Biden is appears to be keeping some of them. Um, he's a he's an Atlanticist. He's a he's a Europhile, so he's going to lift all the trade restrictions on Europe. Um, but the trade rep seems well intent to keep a lot of the tariffs in China, which is the real game, right? Like as, as, as interesting as tariff policy on French wine is, it's really not like we're going to be great power comp- competing with Macron as much as Macron would like that. Um, the, the game is China. And so far, the in you know, the imitation is the highest form of flattery and, and Biden's imitating Trump on trade. It's been crazy to see um, <clears throat> the polling on like public opinion on China. Uh, like if you look at like 2014 2015 you know it's like generally kind of in the middle you mm-hmm. know people just kind of don't really care and it just craters mm-hmm. at like right after trump gets elected and just continues to decline and i don't think really seems to be changing and you're right you know uh, biden has brought in some people who uh, which is interesting like for for the democratic party to have like you know, anti-China right. experts in your administration. It's kind of an interesting thing. I think it was something that Sagar actually brought up on our on know. our first episode. Um, they talked about that some. Uh, are there any other areas aside from, you know, China that you kind of view the Biden administration continuing, uh, you know, any work that the Trump administration was doing? Well, Iran. I mean, oh, yeah, I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're this is Trump was a Um, Trump was very hawkish on Iran with a couple of notable exceptions um, himself. So Trump's administration was very hawkish. I mean, the the assassination of Soleimani, the, the IRGC commander, was unthinkable before it happened, frankly. Um, but on the other hand, Trump doesn't talk like an Iran hawk. Trump doesn't care what happens to Syria. Like, the Iran hawks really care about what happens to Syria because, like, Frankly, the Iranian regime cares about what happens to Syria. Syria is kind of the game. Um, and Trump doesn't understand why it's important and obviously is not a fellow traveler in that, which is clue number one, that he doesn't fully believe in all of this. Clue number two is that nobody really – and I got sort of tweeted this today um, – nobody really knows what it would look like if Trump had actually sat down with the supreme leader, which would never have happened, but like say like Sarif or um, Rani and – if North Korea is any example, and I think there's there's all kinds of reasons why Trump was able to like basically say, ah, we're going to do whatever with North Korea, and then he couldn't with Iran, right? Like, I mean, there's a lot of pressure from Israel. There's not a lot of pressure from Israel on North Korea, um, but there's a legitimate chance that he could have done a deal that after everything he had done in Iran, that would have been potentially more favorable, or at least some sort of informal agreement um, that would have been more favorable to the Iranians than even Obama's was, the Iranian government, to be clear. It's all speculation, um, but the, the the main lobby outfits for hawkish uh, policy, uh, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, is a sort of main Iran hawk um, outfit. Their leadership was concerned about this, and like you you've seen, like um, Biden is this institution man who's going to preserve a lot of Trump's Iran policy, not all of it, but some of it. Um, they're sitting pretty right now, and that seems to be the case. Uh with the broader, you know, foreign policy establishment is that they're they're basically fine with Biden. Where could that go awry? I mean, is it is it potentially the influence of the hard left in the administration? Where where will Biden make them un or the Biden administration, because those are two separate things, make them unhappy on foreign policy? Where will Biden make the left unhappy? Where will he make the kind of liberal internationalist crew in DC that is in both parties unhappy? I don't. I don't know. I mean, maybe nowhere. I mean. I mean. I mean. It's like there are, there are some liberal nationalists that are pretty that are kind of pro Saudi. It's like the, their old relationships, and he seems to be, he seems to be slapping them down a little bit. I mean, the U.S. is basically pulling out of Yemen, but that was kind of coming, although Trump had was fighting that. Um, uh, the the liberal nationalist foreign policy establishment to this, the extent that it is one thing. It, I, I like the term the blob because it implies it's not one thing. It's the sort of roving, you know, goo. And I think that's accurate. It's not actually a conspiracy. Um, I, I don't think he's going to disappoint them at all. 
I, I just, I just, I, and I think unless they lose power, unless, unless they, I think Biden is best understood as, as really, really good power. And like, if the left wing mounts a serious offensive, I think you've seen a little bit of this, uh, big progressive champion, Ro Khanna, who's basically Silicon Valley's congressman, um, interesting figure. Um, he's a real deal trainer, um, across the board, um, former student of John Mearsheimer, um, doesn't want to do any of this stuff in China or not totally, but he's, he's quite skeptical and quite skeptical of our, our stuff in the Middle East and they're complaining about it. And you've got a little bit of like Jacobin Magazine complaining about him. You got a little bit of like AOC complaining about him, but I don't know. Jacobin Magazine is not going to cut it. <laughs> like I think, I think Biden has successfully sidelined these people. And I think that the main, you know, uh, sort of psychic um, thing that's going on on the left side of the country is that Biden got rid of Orange Hitler. And like, you know, even though we're going to go back to like, you know, Clintonism or Obamaism or whatever, there's there's a real reticence to get in, get on, get in on him early. And also Biden's age is this weird strength, right? It's like, it's like, well, you'll be sure he'll be gone by 2024. Sure, he won't run again. Uh, you know, like versus if this was like Buttigieg as the president or something, you would actually, I think, see a way larger clash between the center left wing and the and the hard left wing. Even though Buttigieg himself considers himself not really center left, but come on, yeah, he's a progressive who can get things done. Um, I think that you touched on a very interesting question that I know a lot of restrainers are worried about these days, which is the nature of the evolving consensus on China. Uh, you mentioned that Ro Khanna has been has been skeptical of some of this China approach. What's the concern there? What's the concern? You know, say if you're interested in realigning the Republican Party towards a more restraint-minded mode on foreign policy, of what the the renewed China hawkery could become. So basically, what was the basically what's the what's the left view on China? What's the right view on China? Well, more to put a fine point on it. There's a lot of people who are worried that what China is essentially going to become is a stand-in for Russia or a stand-in for the Middle East. This I think is it's, where... a little more, it's a little more complex because basically the Republicans want to hate on China and Iran and the, Repo and the Democrats want to hate on China and Russia. Yeah. And I would submit hating on China and Russia is dumber than hating on China and Iran because China and Russia at the same time seems insane to me. China and Iran is also kind of nuts, but Iran is smaller than Russia. So that's the basic, my personal bias there. Right. But it seems to be um, very much a thing. I don't know. I think basically the progressive case against the China hawk stuff is that it will be a drumbeat to war and war is bad and we'll lose or we'll kill people or evil, something around along those lines, humanitarian. Um, the right dove critique is, or the right restraint critique is that they're a peaceful trading partner. And what's the problem? Um, I don't think this is a compelling argument. On either side, I think it's um, you. If you have a real rival to the United States, that um, does slave labor, it does concentration camps, and it is a handmaiden to the hauling out of the industrial base of the United States. Serious problem. I, I think that deglobalization and decoupling is not only preferable, but something that's inevitable. But deglobalization and decoupling have implications for for almost a more domestic set of issues, right? It's yes. creating relationships. It's it's sort of more bread. It's butter as opposed to guns. Mm -hmm. The guns uh, elements that that we often hear about are things like the South China Sea. Uh, the you know what what extent are we willing to uh, make our military contiguous with that of Taiwan's? Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the flashpoints that could very quickly emerge in the coming years that could lead to an active hot war with China. Or Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan is probably the most dangerous place on earth. I mean, I, it's, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I think there's going to be a major sort of conservative argument that makes the case um, Washington and American die for, for Taiwan. And, you know, the sort of the progressive argument will probably be something of the same vain, although a little squishier, like let's come up to a dip diplomatic solution, et cetera. I don't know. I mean, if if you look at, if you, I think the problem from, from Biden's perspective, the sort of liberal internationalist perspective, anyone who, who, who says they want an international order rules-based, um, it's unclear that the conservatives are really saying that anymore, but it is true that basically the progressives are saying that to a rule. So if we want a rules-based international order, and we thought that the Russians annexing a slice of Eastern Ukraine was the end of the world, right? Or the Iranians getting involved in Syria. You're talking about the Chinese potentially hostily killing people. 
bombs, smartphones, recording the whole thing. Hun- you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people being killed in Taipei, city as large as the United States, as large as New York City, largest city in the United States. And they just do that. And that's allowed. I think that just changes the 21st century. That's just like, it's back. Like this is the thirties. Like we can just take over countries again. Like, and, you, know, you know, real countries. And then. Or, or, or <laughs> developed, super developed countries. I mean, right. Taiwan in some ways is more developed than the United States per capita. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't stop at Taiwan then, right? I think the concern that I've heard is that you then start to, if you're Japan in that situation, you get real nervous. Uh, yes. If you're South Korea, you get real nervous. Yes. And, and then I, it, everything can spiral out of control fairly quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, I, look, I don't think that the Chinese are planning to invade South Korea or Japan, certainly. But, you know, no one knows what this looks like. And I think it's very clear that the Chinese want to be the dominant player in, in the region and, and have long-term goals to supplant the United States explicitly. And, you know, if you're in East Asia, which is like super sophisticated, super developed part of the world, and you just have old school, great power annexation, it's, it's pretty violent stuff in your neighborhood. Yeah. Um, going back to the landscape in 2024, um, who are some of the other players that you, th- I mean, it, the, people kind of know the names that are coming up, yeah. you know, Mike Pence, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, Pompeo, uh, you know, people talk about a variety of senators, whether it's Hawley, Cruz, some of the others. Uh, but it, it seems like every time I read a piece uh, about 2024 from you, I find out about someone else who's a dark horse candidate. I think you, you said Ann Coulter in a piece not too long ago. What, and that I think is the real interesting question, right? Is I have this trouble thinking about 2024, and I refuse to do it at a certain level because in 2012, if you were projecting out to 2016, the top two vote getters on the right were a senator who had just been elected and a game show host. Are are we in for a reprisal of something like that? Just total wild cards out of nowhere, it, and Trump may be Although a wild card. Although it wasn't card. insane to think that Trump would run in 20. I mean, I mean, like, I mean, just because we, just because the pundit class, well, not all pundits got it wrong for the record. And then, um, are you referring to yourself? There? <laughs> uh, you know, I wasn't important then. Not that I'm important now, but if you talk to people who talked to me in the summer of 15, I thought Trump would be the nominee from July 4th on, and. But no one was guessing in spring of 2013 that Trump would be the nominee, and that's. The, I think that, there. I think there is some record of somebody <laughs> of somebody having, of being ahead of the curve on this. I'm trying to remember. It might have been like Charlie Hurt or something like this. Like I, I think there, there. Roger Stone. Yeah. Roger Stone thought he would, but of course, there's self interest there. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's the beauty of Roger Stone, right? So yeah. It's, it's a beauty in the curse, but it's it's. Um, Yeah, on the one hand, I think it's really unsettled. On the other hand, I think we know who the nominee will be. Like, 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 I think we know the name of the nominee. Like, I, I like, like the idea of like, so like, yes, it's super open, but it's also super closed. Like the idea that like people who would watch this show or people who would be on the show have not heard of the Republican nominee in 2024 sounds insane to mm-hmm. me. And I don't think it's going to happen. If you're a rap fan, you know who Kanye West is. <laughs> don't, don't, don't think he will be the nominee. Don't think. Yeah. I, 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 I think the Kanye thing is like, this is actually a little bit. I, it, 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 I had a friend who wanted to do this ridiculous book. I kind of respected it though. In like, it was like 17 or 18. And it was like, well, what if we just like, and I, obviously somebody has done this, not him, but like, because like obviously some consultant like invoiced Prince Harry for like $25,000 to tell Meghan Markle she could be president. Like, yeah. like, <laughs> so like, so like, you know, um, the view on Trump is like it's just celebrity, right? Like it's just like any celebrity can get in. Trump was like crazy enough to do it, and so like our future is, you know, um, you know, President Damon versus you know nominee Chuck Norris or something. I don't, I don't know. like you know like something ridiculous. I, I think the real problem with that is that the Republicans were uniquely poised for someone like Trump to become the nominee because. Um, Granted, he's an obviously very unconventional businessman, but most Republicans think of him as a very successful businessman. And for a generation, from Reagan on down, government's the problem. And you can see also seeds in sort of center to center right America of like, if only this country were run like a business. Perot was sort of like this, this sort of flirtation of Mark Cuban to run. Like, 
the business thing was key versus although Kanye West is a real deal businessman, he's not seen that way. He's seen as an artist. When I remember this kind of happening, uh, not a lot of people remember this, but uh, this sort of thing was happening at the same time in Canada in 2015. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Kevin O'Leary, I think, oh, flirted. Oh, yeah, the Shark Tank. Yeah. Was that 2015? I think well, I want to well, say well, it was well, 20. Wasn't it after Trudeau won? I think he, I think he was running to be the conservative leader yeah. after Trudeau won. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, okay. He was. That's You're what saying, I'm saying. Once Harper lost, yes, yes, that he was running for uh, for leader of the Conservative Party. Yes, uh, and it was happening. Sort of. I, I, I was actually reminded of this by like a Facebook memory from not too long ago because I had posted about it like six years ago, and so I was the, like, "So do Minnesotans care about Canada? Is this what's going on? It's, it's like basically it's, Canada. It's their Taiwan. Dang, as Sarab calls it, Diet Canada. Yeah. Um, no, I spent a lot of time in Canada. You know, my uh, my grandma lives not too far from the border, and been up to Winnipeg a bunch of times. And my uh, my uncle lived in PEI. I can't take uh, any of this so, seriously. So I spent a lot. Of, Listen, Canada's a great place, but but no, I I I distinctly remember like posting, oh my gosh, Trump and Kevin O'Leary are like running at the same time to like lead, and this is really cool, and that's kind of a you know maybe a little bit of a cringe opinion to have about Kevin O'Leary now, but um, I I think there's certainly something to that. People vote to the extent that you can can speak for Canadian conservatives. Is that? I just view the the Trump businessman Republican thing. It's just so American. Like, oh, it totally. Is. What, what did it transfer to Canada? <laughs> well, and and this is well, I think ultimately that's probably why he dropped out, right? Um, it, this is kind of an interesting thing, actually, that I've been toying with for for a while. There are a couple um, folks in the Canadian uh, Conservative Party that are going to be very mad at what I'm about to say. Uh, <laughs> Canadians love to deny emulating American politics while trying to emulate American politics as much as possible. Um, And they don't do it in such a brash way, but like you've certainly seen this with um, the way Aaron O'Toole acts now. Um, You know, they're still, uh, you know, they're not on board like socially, you know, conservative, I guess, but um, definitely on like the China stuff. They've started to talk about the trade stuff a little more. um, And they do... They do like a like a C job of like impersonating. I mean that uh, Aaron O'Toole speech policies. that everyone thinks about as like, oh, Americans started paying attention to him, like sounded like a speech that Marco Rubio could give. Like it, it's, yeah. it sounded very similar. Yes, and it's and it's kind of like the imitation. And of course, like again, most most the Canadian conservatives I know are gonna be in my DMs after seeing this, they're gonna be very mad. Oh, you know, how dare you accuse of us of a impersonating American politics? Like, we're not American, it's not the same. But no, really, it's it's that's kind of the way it's 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 going right now as they kind of impersonate whatever the whatever the hot thing is in American politics. And like certainly they calm it down a couple notches like, you know, there were people that talked about, oh, like, you know, when when all the uh, the races were going on in what that would have been 2019, they were like, who's the Canadian Trump going to be? I, I, I don't think there's actually going to be a Canadian Trump that gets elected. That's just like just that level of nuts and like loud and brash. Like, I don't really, I don't really think that's likely. Um, but they do certainly like to at times, uh, adopt the policies and somewhat of the messaging, I guess, of American politics. Well, and American social pathologies are clearly exportable. I mean, there's black lives matter marches in Ireland. (laughs) That's true. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. There have been black lives matter marches in Honduras, dude. Like, Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, Kurt, you, you seem to be prescient on a lot of this stuff. You were, you told everyone to take Joe Biden seriously long before, uh, many of us did. Uh, what is it that you think people aren't taking seriously about the state of American politics right now that you think will be a factor in two, three, four years? I think the economy could crash. It just, it, it just yeah, it just seems like it's the crash. hockey stick is going it up just, too much. It, it just seems like it's going to crash. So what's your advice to everyone? Buy gold and in the <laughs> desert or? Yeah. I'm not sure I'd buy anything. That is not investment I'm not. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not an economist. I, 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 I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I think that my understanding, my extreme layman's understanding of of the spending debate is I we just learned, we just had a sort of tour de force demonstration of people that are called experts can be very well-trained, extremely well-meaning, patriotic, 
experts are in the eye of the beholder and experts self-declared or proclaimed disagree with each other frequently. And what we know is that economists super disagree on spending. Sort of rewind to the last time you had a Democratic president. The national debt was about half the size as it was now. And basically the entire conservative part of the country thought if you spent too much, you would have an inflation crisis. And the center left of the country kind of agreed, right? Like Lawrence Summers, the Clinton wing. That was wrong. Totally wrong. Apparently you could have the, the debt be twice as large and not spike an inflation crisis. But it's a super unexplored experiment to see if this won't cause an inflation crisis, number one. And if the experiment is wrong, it's a huge problem. Um, I think you can already see global housing prices look really concerning as a as a millennial and graduated you know, high school at 18. Housing housing booms scare me. <laughs> they don't they don't go well, right? Like it's a it's a very psychological thing, right? And people losing their home, etc. And also the you know the real way to build wealth in America is for most people their homes, and so it's a huge problem. It crashes. It's politically unstable. So I think that's I think I I just think the idea that like the Dems will get to 2024 without some sort of economic correction at minimum um, is a major thing. That's if that happens, that's going to give a lot of energy to the Republicans, even if they don't have their act together whatsoever. And some people ask me like, well, what do you think about 2024? I think the Republicans are favored straight up. And uh, when they asked me, it's like, well, what do you think? Why do you think so much of the Republicans? I'm like, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think I think you know it's two choices, and I think they could be win- they could be in good shape by default. Um, I assume you want to ask about people. Who who do I think who people aren't thinking about? Sure, I'll give you one name. Yeah, I wasn't going to ask, but while I'll, give, you're I'll, I'll give you one name. John Kennedy, Louisiana. I think number one, huge name recognition. <laughs> also have you ever heard him talk like number, he's got like a number great two voice. america's gonna dig it like yeah. his, his his like people could say whatever they like if you'd be turned off about it, they're gonna like this sort of like folksy grandfather southern yeah. it's gonna get a moment and um i think he's looking at it and uh matter of fact i know he's looking at it but i mean if he's I think he could be a contender if he gets in. Are we breaking news right there? Does, oh, that, no, no, does no, anybody no, know no, that? We like, break news. You, you'll see a piece on it. But I, I think he's. I think, um, and especially like if the if the right wants to be populist, like I mean, the return it's of the kingfish. It's a literal. It's a literal Louisiana statewide politician. Like I, I, I think he's. I think he's contender if he wants it. Mm. I remember thinking this for the first time during the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings. I was like. Oh, oh! This man is a lot smarter than people think. <laughs> yeah. He he's apparently um, uh, whip smart, like um, just really smart. Now, I mean, life's weird. I mean, like, what was he doing as Louisiana State Treasurer from two thousand one to two thousand seventeen? Like, maybe really well run books in Louisiana. I have no idea. But like, you know, he sort of like didn't get into national prominence until his late sixties. Well, didn't he run like fourteen times or something? Maybe like I, that? I actually don't know the full. Yeah, yeah, I think I think he did lose. I mean, he, 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 he's tried to run for. Usually, federal office usually like four these, times. yeah i mean it's like it's like it's very strange right? i mean it's, it's people become federal players and there's oftentimes a backstory of like their struggles to even get in i mean like i mean for instance donald trump like looked at a new york governor's race that he probably would have lost in 2014 pete Buttigieg lost a i believe it was indiana state treasurer race to a guy called richard murdoch who basically forfeited an indiana state senate seat in 2012 um yeah i don't know it's, it's strange Barack Obama lost a congressional seat to Bobby Rush in 2000, got whipped. Um, so people lose. Um, Bill Clinton lost a race. George W. Bush lost a race in the 70s. Um, somebody who's stayed in the game forever is Joe Biden. That's the other, that's the other way. Just, just don't. Just keep playing. Anything could happen. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Kurt. Thanks, guys. After having Kurt on today, we wanted to talk about a couple of pieces on AmCan, and that's once again our aggregator of the best books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, short pieces, and other stuff that we find across the web and elsewhere. Again, 
we, we, we really don't feel like we have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to the takes that we agree with here at American Moment. And so we just try to centralize them in one place for your easy reading. The piece I wanted to talk about today was one directly related to the China question that we talked about a little bit with Kurt. One of the things that I mentioned is that a lot of people who are interested in foreign policy restraint, that is restraining the aspirations of American empire, are really concerned about some of the framing that's coming out on the issue of China. For people like us at American Moment, we're concerned about China primarily as an issue of trade, uh, the consequences that it's had for us domestically, hollowing out our manufacturing base and, and causing deep problems in American society in that sense. However, you find that there is another framing that a lot of foreign policy elites in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere have latched onto, one that really subs in China for Russia or Iran or, or other you know, previously perceived threats of grand strategy and, and thinks that the approach should be much more militaristic and much more focused on ramping up our, our military presence in places like the South China Sea and elsewhere, or perhaps more concerned with, with questions about human rights and, and democracy promotion. There's a piece that I think really illustrated how I think one should think rightly about this issue, written by a good friend of the podcast and, and previous guest, Micah Metacroft. Micah wrote this piece over at American Compass, and it's called China and Civic Piety. And the real money line from it, the one that I always come back to time and time again, is that America owes a strategic counter to China, not to Uyghurs and Hong Kongers, but to the American people. And that can seem like a pretty hard-nosed way of thinking about it, but it very much is the approach that we have, that the primary responsibility of American elites when it comes to the question of our response to China has to start with fixing our trading relationships and ensuring that American manufacturing and the American family are allowed to thrive. So please go check out that piece. Nick, what did you want to talk about today? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about a piece by our third co-founder and um, I think he's an executive producer is his title. He, he, he helps produce our podcast. Yeah, um, <laughs> but he is the uh, chief creative officer of American Moment, Jake Mercier, and he wrote a piece for Real Clear Defense last year called Generation Z in Foreign Policy, Building a Common Vision of Restraint in a Divided Era. Uh, this piece was particularly formative for me uh, and specifically because it spoke to a lot of what I was feeling as a young person getting involved in politics, uh, you know, those of us who are who are a part of Generation Z, uh, we we you know weren't here for the Cold War. We have maybe very loose memories, um, you know, surrounding 9/11 and trying to build our own uh, kind of foreign policy and what the vision is for our generation and generations uh, coming after us. Uh, is difficult when we when we live in a time dominated by these uh, visionaries of a bygone era. So uh, this is a really great piece. You can check this piece out, the piece that Rob mentioned, and a whole lot more at AmericanMoment.org slash Amcanon. Um, we'll hope you go check it out. Thanks for listening to our episode this week, and we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.